Hello and welcome to this Latrobe Asia launch of our sixth Latrobe Asia policy brief, Fresh Perspectives on the Indo-Pacific. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University uh, in Melbourne, Australia. And I would like to begin the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who are watching this webinar. And part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our knowledge and understanding of our region. Uh, and today's launch of the sixth Latrobe Asia Brief uh, is a culmination of a program that we've run uh, called Regional Perspectives on the Free and Open Indo-Pacific. And we have been running this program with the support of the US Embassy and with Australian youth diplomacy organisations. And this is a program uh, that has been designed for emerging leaders across Australia in the field of international affairs. Uh, and I'm delighted to say that the hard copy of the Latrobe Asia Brief has just come straight off the press. Uh, and if you would like a copy of this, you can feel free to email us at Latrobe Asia. It is also available uh, in soft copy on the website. As part of the project, we have published 13 policy briefs on our Latrobe Asia website. Uh, and this hard copy features eight of those contributions, and they're focusing on a range of topics and countries. Uh, so our Indo-Pacific emerging leaders have looked at critical issues facing the region, including the crisis in Myanmar, uh, issues to do with ASEAN, uh, women, peace, security, food security, the Pacific and trade. And we've really sought to showcase some of the issues that emerging leaders consider to be the most pressing in the Indo-Pacific uh, and potential solutions for addressing these issues. Uh, so you can find uh, additional articles on our website that look at topics such as AUKUS, democracy in the region, and Asian language literacy. Latrobe Asia is thankful to the US Embassy uh, in Canberra for their support of the Indo-Pacific Emerging Leaders Dialogue. So the brief and tonight's event provides uh, an insight into the fresh perspectives on the Indo-Pacific, uh, offering some thoughts into policy thinking of next generation Australian leaders. Uh, and today's launch of the Latrobe Asia Brief features three of our fantastic contributors. And I'm really pleased uh, to have uh, the three contributors joining me today. Uh, first up, we have Tom Barber, who is a program officer with the Asia Pacific Development, Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, and an, a good friend of Latrobe Asia uh, has been engaged with us for a long period of time. Uh, Tom has a keen interest in Australia's international affairs, uh, previously working as a research assistant at Deakin University and with us at Latrobe Asia uh, and has been published in the Lowy Institute's Interpreter. Welcome, Tom. We are also joined by Isadora Vadaz, who works in criminal law policy for the Victorian Department of Justice and Community Safety. Uh, she holds a Master of Law and Development and has studied and worked on the intersection of law, gender and conflict uh, and spent time uh, and spent contributing to criminal justice projects in Myanmar and Cambodia. Welcome, Isadora. Last but certainly not least, we have Alexander M. Hind, who is a PhD candidate in international relations at the University of New South Wales and a research associate at UNSW's Korea Research Initiatives. He is also a senior research analyst at one of South Korea's top 10 law firms and a book review editor at the Journal of Territorial and Maritime Studies. Welcome, Alexander. Now, the way that we are going to run today's event uh, is each of our panellists will have uh, 10 minutes or so uh, to present 
on their paper and then we're going to open it up for uh, question and answer. So if you have any questions for our panellists, uh, please feel free to put them in the Q&A box as we go along. Uh, but I'm going to invite Tom uh, to kick off the presentations. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Beck. Um, yeah, I'd like to also acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of East Kulin Nation and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging too. Um, thanks to La Trobe Asia and um, all the partners and thanks to the US Embassy for making this Emerging Leaders program possible. Um, so my paper deals with um, diplomatic investment and Australia's diplomatic capacity. And I'd like to begin with a couple of figures. Um, so a, a recent ASPE report by former Ambassador James Wise shows that DFAT's budget has shrunken by 9% in real terms since the turn of the century. Um, over the same period, the defence budget has increased by 122% in real terms. So as a percentage of GDP, that's 0.3% compared to 2.1% or a seven-fold difference. Um, these figures might not come as a surprise to many of the people tuning in. You know, the idea that um, Australia has under-resourced DFAT isn't a new one. Uh, a number of high-profile foreign policy experts, former practitioners, including a few um, former DFAT secretaries, have been vocal in pointing out um, what they see as the worsening state of Australian diplomatic investment. Um, but diplomacy is rarely a high public priority in Australia. Um, when it does crop up, it's often topic or event specific. Um, and can be refracted through a domestic lens. So the political incentives to increase diplomatic funding haven't really been there. Um, and thoughtful debate on Australia's place in the world doesn't really happen in a mainstream sense. Um, so drawing attention to the negative consequences of successive cuts to diplomacies has really only been the purview of specialists or people who are really focused on trying to look at that particular topic. Um, this appears to be changing. So AUKUS is a prominent example. Um, there's been plenty written about France having been caught off guard with the announcement and criticism of it as lacking detail and being more style than substance. Um, you know, France is an important Indo-Pacific power that Australia was trying to forge closer ties with, but it's since removed us from their list of close strategic partners as a consequence. So I guess on that point, diplomacy is like a muscle. Um, if it's not adequately exercised, not adequately nourished, then it can atrophy. Other examples in recent years include the decision not to renew the domestic manufacturing of COVID vaccines that our region would, could really benefit from, um, the floating of the idea to move the Australian embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, uh, the SNAP export ban on cattle to Indonesia. These are all notable cases that have been cited um, as diplomatic fails, if you like. Uh, it's impossible to prove counterfactual, but, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that these kind of missteps could have been avoided had DFAT been more adequately resourced and consulted. Um, so as Australia's circumstances have sharply changed, um, concerning trends have been accelerated by COVID, we're now in a much more contested environment. Um, our outlook is no longer so benign, and I think there's a reflexive tendency towards overreaction because of that. We've had a comfortable strategic environment for so long, a, power, a great and powerful friend, like from the beginning of settlement in Australia. Um, but, you know, now that everything's changing, I think it shows that complacency has kind of led to reac reactionism when the um, situation isn't so easy. Uh, I think we've, we've skipped ahead of a step as a nation. Um, we've turbocharged our defence capability but left diplomacy to kind of language, uh, languish at a time when I think it's needed the most in difficult times. You know, Scott Morrison recently announced $38 billion in additional defence spending, and in justifying it, he said that you can't flick a switch to increase your army, navy and air force overnight. Growing the type of people and skills we need to face the threats of the future takes time, so we must start now so critical skills can be taught and experience gained. So he was talking about defence there, but I'd argue that this exact same could be said of diplomacy. Um, you know, diplomats don't grow on trees. You need to invest long-term to get that capability up to, up to speed. Um, so on the additional defence spending, you know, not every problem is a nail. Um, a well-funded diplomatic corps is more agile, it's more deployable, um, it's more able to respond to a much wider range of problems and challenges than defence is. The hammer of defence, some would call it, um, which only has one core kind of warfighting deterrence function. 
Um, you know, there's things that defence logistics can help with in terms of um, non-traditional threats, I guess. So, like, with climate change, um, logistics can help with the symptoms such as Operation ADF's Operation Bushfire Assist, but it can't help with the root causes, like a diplomatic effort such as the Conference of Parties is configured to do. It's not to say we shouldn't invest in defence. You know, I think we should and I think we need to. Um, you just look at Russia and Ukraine in the last few weeks and it shows that the international orders, you know, it's a lot less benign than it was just a decade ago. Um, the era of US unipolarity is well and truly over and it is a more dangerous world. But defence investment should be in addition to, not at the expense of diplomacy. You know, I don't pretend to have all the answers here. It's a tough calculus juggling different priorities with finite resources. But um, I'd argue that it makes sense to utilise all the elements of statecraft at your disposal, even more so in challenging times. It's, you know, it's the logic of don't put all your eggs in one basket, diversify risk, that type of thing. Um, so how should we proceed from here? Um, so I write in the article about the UK integrated review, which I think is a good place to start. So what is that? Um, Essentially, it's a distillation of UK foreign policy and the defence white paper, uh, and the defence white paper into a single summary document. Um, it notes the overlap and interaction between you know, broad trends, outlines the UK's national security and foreign policy objectives in response to those trends, and really underscores the benefits of a more coherent and integrated approach to achieve their stated goals. Um, it's less an attempt to prescribe specific policies on every issue more of an outlining of the national narrative that sets a foreign policy baseline and really identifies those priority actions that can kind of guide statecraft as a whole. The process here is what's key. Um, and an Australian integrated review, I think would help to draw out national priorities and allocate resources to them in a dispassionate way. There's value in bringing together the distinct elements of statecraft in order to break down silos, coordinate strategies and optimize resources. Um, Alignment, it's not simply the addition of capabilities. It can be a force multiplier if done, uh, if done right. And the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts with each arm of statecraft complementing the others. Um, so as this Latrobe program was happening last year, um, I actually saw an advertisement for a job with a new initiative, the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, AP4D. Um, and that... That um, initiative seeks to do just that, break down silos, foster a more integrated approach to Australian foreign policy and build a 3D constituency, 3D being development, diplomacy and defence. Um, so I applied for the role and was successful. So I'm in the privileged position now to be working on the same issues that I wrote about for this piece. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting topic. So if you, if you want to learn more, you can check out um, our work on what an integrated approach to Australian foreign policy looks like in practice in Southeast Asia on our website, asiapacific4d.com. Um, but just to finish up, you know, I'm not advocating for diplomacy over defence. Um, you know, both are needed, I think, clearly. It's about getting the balance right in order to optimise finite resources, you know, leverage the strengths of each of the arms of statecraft and really maximise Australia's um, room for foreign policy manoeuvre. There's no easy answers, um, but, you know, the more options we keep open to us, the better prepared we will be moving ahead. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Tom. Asia Pacific 4G are certainly very lucky to have you on the team. Now, just before we get to our second speaker, Isadora, I did want to just um, pop in a quick question to you, Tom. We are in an election year. Uh, it shouldn't be too far away. Do you think that we are headed towards a khaki election? And do you think that um, diplomacy and aid are likely to get a look in uh, in this year's federal election? That's a good question. Um, I think it's pretty clear that it is looking like a khaki election. Um, you know, the Morrison government is really trying to, um, it seems, differentiate itself from the ALP on defence and national security. Um, the opposition for its parts kind of trying to say that national security should be above partisan politics, and there's been a bit of back and forth on that recently. Um, you know, whether or not bipartisanship on national security is an intrinsically good thing or not, that's another matter. Um, there's a good piece by um, Richard Lord recently in Lowy that kind of goes through the pros and cons of that. Um, but, you know, aside from rhetorical differences, the substance, I think, is, is quite 
similar between the parties. Um, you know, on things like AUKUS, the Quad, the US Alliance, there's really no substantive differences there. Um, you know, on China, for example, um, I think Elena Collinson has a great piece out that shows pretty much complete policy consensus on 16 key issues across that. Um, I think the focus on national security is somewhat overshadowing a growing recognition on both sides of the importance of all of the elements of statecraft, you know, be it development, diplomacy or defence. Um, you know, it's, it's a positive trend, I think, uh, that consensus is kind of building. Um, recent um, articulations by both sides have kind of speak to that. So Scott Morrison's talked about using all of elements of statecraft. Um, Maurice Payne's talked about the importance of a whole of government approach. Um, the Minister for International Development said Selgers said that Australia needs to leverage all tools of statecraft. And it's the same with the ALP. Um, Anthony Albanese has spoken about how he wants to rebuild diplomatic service and revitalise the aid program. Um, Penny Wong's talked about how um, statecraft is greater than the sum of its parts. And um, Pat Conroy has also outlined the need for um, more coordination and joined up thinking in Australian foreign policy. Um, so it's hard to say concrete commitments before the budget next week, um, which hopefully we'll get a bit more of a concrete um, idea on policies and things like that. But Labor seems to have committed um, in his speech to Lowy Institute last week, Al Albanese said that Labor would reverse the marginalisation that had occurred in DFAT. Um, you know, the, the government's announcements recently have been more focused on national security, but as I said just before, like there is at least a recognition that they've outlined and articulated that is encouraging um, in terms of hopefully getting a bit more funding for diplomacy and development. So I think it's a positive trend, um, better than nothing, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen, but yeah, let's see. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and now I'm going to hand the virtual microphone over to uh, Isadora. Thanks, Beck. Hi, everybody. I'm super thrilled to be here to um, talk a little bit about my, uh, my article, Supporting Gender Inclusive Conflict Resolution, which is about what Australia can do to support inclusive transitions to democracy from conflict in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, so I wanted to start off by giving a little bit of an overview of some of the central principles of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Um, so the sort of foundational document of the, of the agenda is uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which essentially emphasises that conflicts are highly gendered. And um, despite the fact that peace processes and, and politics in general have historically been characteristically masculine spaces. Um, this undermines the impact that conflict has on women and, um, and ignores the effect that, uh, that women's inclusion can have on, on, on sustainable peace. Um, so the agenda uh, emphasizes that civilian women are often the most adversely effect affected by conflict. Um, and also that uh, women's empowerment plays a huge role in sustainable peace because there really there is a really strong link between um, gender equality um, and and social equality in general um, and peace. So equality is is a really strong underpinner of um, of peaceful societies. Um, a study of 156 peace agreements worldwide showed that when women are included in peace processes. Agreements are 35% more likely to last at least 15 years. And when conflict is at stake, I think those numbers are, are really important. Um, so in my article, um, I discuss, I begin by discussing the, the peace process in Cambodia in the, in the 90s. So in 2019, I had the, the privilege of working for an NGO um, called NGO CEDAW that worked in women's empowerment. Um, and it was chaired by um, Dr. Pung Chib Kek, who um, was the only woman involved, even remotely, in Cambodia's peace process. So um, she wasn't invited to the official negotiations, but she was a really key player in getting some of the figures of the conflict to, to actually begin dialogues. She's an incredibly impressive woman and also Cambodia's first female doctor. Um, so, uh, Unfortunately, that peace process was not at all gender inclusive. And I would argue that has something to do with the fact that Cambodia 
suffers from high levels of inequality today um, because the the really transformative effect of um, including women and uh, issues of gender in that peace process was was not um, that opportunity was not taken. So um, I sort of I asked what Australia can do to support more inclusive and sustainable peace in the Indo-Pacific, looking specifically at this at the ongoing situation in Myanmar that's been unfolding, um, in particular the, the situation that's been unfolding since um, since last year. Um, so knowing that there is a causal um, relationship between inequality and violent conflict. Um, obviously, the situation in, in Myanmar um, occurs against a really complex backdrop of ethnic, linguistic and other conflict and, and quite high levels of, of gender inequality. Um, there are really significant uh, gendered elements of the conflict. Um, we know that the Myanmar military is a, is a um, highly patriarchal organisation and we've seen from some of the media reports um, that the, the, the sort of civil disobedience movement in Myanmar has had really significant gendered elements. Like, for example, I think about 60% of the protesters um, when they began in, in the beginning of 2021 were, were women. Um, so I think that um, Australia can support this really crucial groundwork um, that's happening in Myanmar um, and, and support a peace process a peace process in the future, whenever that may um, occur, that's inclusive and, and also really long lasting. Um, so Australia has a national action plan on gender, peace and security. Um, and that recognises that women's empowerment can have a disruptive effect on cycles of conflict. And I think this is particularly relevant um, uh, for the situation in Myanmar, which has experienced um, conflicts in, in one form or another for, for many decades now. Um, I recommended that Australia build on their really robust tradition of, um, of, of promoting peace and democracy, such as, um, such as their involvement in the peace process in Cambodia, um, and demonstrate its commitment to an inclusive and peaceful Indo-Pacific region by supporting inclusive peace in Myanmar. So my recommendation um, for that would, would be to support um, the really uh, the really uh, strong civil society organisations that are already um, already active in Myanmar, um, who will be really key to achieving the goal of um, an inclusive um, peace in the future. Um, Women-led civil society is already already really active in Myanmar and providing um, peace building and humanitarian services. Um, and Australia can pr provide um, financial and technical support to ensure that these organisations can continue and, and grow their operations because we know that um, e even if it's a sort of long-term goal, uh, in increasing gender equality in Myanmar will go a long way towards um, an inclusive and long-lasting peace in the future. Um, technical support could also come in the form of providing um, training or finance for training um, so that women have the skills to be able to participate um, at, or mediate a future peace process. Um, and the aim of this is to promote, to promote gender equality because, as, as I mentioned, um, it really does underpin a peaceful society um, and also a peace process with women's inclusion um, is more likely to create the foundations for the greater inclusion of women um, in society post-conflict. Um, Women's direct inclusion and influence, as I, as I mentioned, in, in peace processes can really help reduce gender-based violence, enhance gender equality, um, diffuse conflict and lead to a more sustainable peace. Uh, because when women have the opportunity to influence peace processes, they frequently broaden the set of issues at the negotiating table beyond just the, the, direct, um, the direct parties of the conflict. Uh, to address development and human rights issues as well as security and, and really be able to shape the form and structure of, of the society post-conflict. Um, so to finish up the article, I return back to the story of Dr Keck, who, who recently said in an interview that she really wishes that her nation could enjoy long, true peace. And I think that um, Australia could, could use that example uh, to promote a really uh, stable and conflict-free conflict -free Indo-Pacific region 
um, by ensuring that that women's voices are heard and incorporated into into peace processes. Thank you so much. And just before we uh, we hear from Alexander, I just wanted to, I mean, your article, it really does tell this fascinating uh, story and it's very much about uh, peace processes in Myanmar and what Australia um, can contribute. But I'm wondering if we can zoom out for uh, a minute and think about what are the next steps for implementing the Women, Peace, Security Agenda in the Indo-Pacific um, beyond uh, you know, peace process is obviously a really important part of that, but there are other things um, that, that need to, to happen in the region. So I'm wondering about your views on that. Yeah, I think that there are a really a lot of options for what um, countries in the Indo-Pacific can do. Um, I think that, that sound policy has, always has to come from a strong evidence base. So I guess I think, um, I think developing a really strong understanding um, by collecting data um, on the gendered nature of conflicts in, in each in each country um, is a really important place to start so that any policy action can can be tailored to the to the demographic and also the actual nature of of the conflict or 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 uh, conflict free society in whichever case um, I think um, an important next step after that, is to develop a national action plan. So the, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda um, asks each country to develop a national action plan. Australia is sadly one of very few countries in the Indo-Pacific that has one, um, others being Bangladesh, Indonesia, Japan, Nepal, Philippines, New Zealand, um, and a couple of others. Um, I think Australia is in a really strong position to be able to support um, neighbouring countries to develop these national action plans, considering we've developed two now. Um, and I think um, we have really strong expertise in this area and some leading experts in the field. Um, so I think uh, regardless of whether a country is experiencing conflict or not, it's really important to have a national action plan in place to guide um, responses to, to, to conflict and even even other security issues like um, extreme weather events. Um, and I think, yeah, I think more knowledge sharing amongst countries that have experienced conflict or are in a position to be able to support others um, is also really crucial um, in this space um, because, I mean, I'm sure not every country expects to be experiencing conflict, but um, in the case that that was to occur, I think, I think our like countries in the Indo-Pacific have a wealth of experience to be able to share um, and learn uh, and, and, yeah, be able to teach other countries about. Thank you very much. And last but certainly not least, uh, Alexander. Thanks, Beck. Uh, so, so I would also like to start my remarks by uh, acknowledging the Ngunnawal and Torres Strait Islander people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm talking to you from today and by paying my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, and I also extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are in the audience here today. Um, and I should also, before I forget, I should also say thank you to the Latrobe Asia team for organising this event and also for the programme at the end of last year, which I was um, fortunate enough to attend, which I think was um, really um, useful and uh, a brilliant opportunity for everyone involved. So thank you very much. Um, my paper was about uh, South Korea's maritime security. And my basic argument is that South Korea needs a naval strategy and mission that's better aligned with its regional priorities. Uh, but before I make that argument, two important points I want to make just for context. Uh, firstly, South Korea and discussions of South Korean maritime security often start by acknowledging that South Korea functions as a kind of geostrategic island because it's sealed off uh, from the rest of continental Asia along the inter-Korean border. And while this term geostrategic island maybe downplays the degrees to which the borders at times been fairly porous over the last 25 years in terms of uh, you know, inter-Korean relations. Nevertheless, the term geostrategic island as applied to South Korea does tell us something quite useful, I think, about South Korea's reliance upon sea lines of communication and a rules-based maritime order for its economic and security needs over the last 70 years. The second point I want to make is that a lot of South Korea's 
naval development and strategic development over the last 30 years has um, been enabled by a very strong maritime history culture, uh, which really kind of shapes the way this development has taken place. So we can talk about historical figures like Zhang Bogo or Yi Sun-Sin and how they're memorialized in the contemporary South Korean state, um, which you can see in the, just in simple facts like how South Korea names its naval platforms and, and types of, yeah, types of platform. Um, and you can also see it in terms of the engagement with the domestic audience. So if you go to Seoul and you walk along the Han River in central Seoul, um, since 2017, there's been something called the, the, the Battleship Park, right? Where you can see this uh, decommissioned South Korean frigate parked up along the side of the main river in Seoul that you can go on and learn about South Korea's maritime history and culture and naval development. And that's really important um, to acknowledge because without that, the substantial investment in uh, naval platforms over the last um, couple of generations in South Korea simply wouldn't have been able to take place. So if I move on to talking just very broadly about South Korea's maritime interests, we can talk really about two types, although of course they overlap. But these kind of, uh, these types are, firstly, if we think about South Korea's maritime interests, in Northeast Asia. Obviously, we have the threat uh, posed by North Korea, especially in waters to the west of the peninsula. But we also have real competition with other regional navies, uh, most notably Japan and China, with a range of disputed maritime boundaries and territories and overlapping air defense identification zones, which in recent years have led to a number of clashes or, or very near misses um, between, these, between these different forces. So obviously these are South Korea's primary interests, but within the last 30 years, you have seen this development of a range of broader regional or blue water interests, um, most notably protecting South Korea's shipping from piracy and other threats, uh, war zone evacuations, and uh, humanitarian aid and, and disaster relief. So really uh, the, the issue for South Korea is how it's sought to balance and, and complement these different interests in terms of how it's developed its Navy. So this naval modernization, which has required substantial material investment in South Korea, has emerged in this post-Cold War period. Uh, and I guess the question is, why has it emerged after the Cold War? Well, I've already talked about this expanding range of interests, especially at the regional level. Uh, we can talk about South Korea's desire for autonomy within the US alliance. And I think we should also mention the important role of status and South Korea's desire to demonstrate its status. Definitely, if we think about some of the larger platforms that have been uh, more controversially under consideration, like the light aircraft carrier, Definitely, um, because naval platforms are so capital intensive, there is an element of status there as well. So in line with this kind of expanding range of interests, uh, South Korea has developed this range of blue water platforms that are able to play a role, uh, importantly, in both peninsula and blue water strategy. An example would be something like the Aegis-equipped KDX-3 destroyer, which has a role both around the peninsula and more broadly. And one of the roles it has is in what's called the Chang'e unit, which has uh, been a South Korean naval task force deployed continuously since 2009 off the coast of Africa uh, to deal with uh, maritime piracy as part of this multilateral anti-piracy uh, deployment. So the problem for South Korea is that uh, this, this Chang'e unit has been there now since 2009. So what's that, 13 years? Um, and in, in the most recent data that we've had, piracy has actually gone down a lot in this area. So there's a real question now of, okay, is this, is this resource, this substantial investment of South Korea's uh, naval resources off the coast of Africa, the real per peripheries of uh, the Indo-Pacific region, is this going to go on indefinitely or are these resources going to be deployed somewhere that's more uh, essential to South Korea's broader regional strategy? So moving on to South Korea's regional policy, I should say first of that uh, South Korea, unlike uh, Australia maybe, has been really reluctant to join the US-led uh, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy or indeed the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and instead has tried to uh, maximize its own autonomy while still engaging with other regional 
perspectives and other regional um, strategies. So one of uh, the current president, Moon Jae-in's, key policy initiatives since 2017 has been the New Southern Policy, which has attempted to expand relations with ASEAN uh, states and India, um, as I say, we're also, we're also seeking opportunities for collaboration with uh, regional strategies. So this new Southern policy uh, has three pillars uh, or known as the three P's, people, prosperity and peace. And while the assessments of this policy, which has now basically run its course uh, because of the recent election, uh, there have been, you know, mixed um, there's a mixed record of this new Southern policy in terms of the assessments that are given of it. But one area of broad consensus, I think, is that out of the three pillars, the least developed of these pillars has been the peace um, pillar, which is related more to issues of security. So uh, as many of you will know, uh, President-elect Yun Suk-yeol, there was a presidential election in South Korea about two weeks ago, and the new president is very much uh, opposed to the previous president. And this new president-elect, Yun Suk-yeol, will take office, we think, around May 10th. And just like previous presidents, it's highly likely that he'll seek to define his regional policy, um, and indeed many policies, in opposition to his predecessor. So in my view, one way that he could do this uh, very fruitfully is by emphasizing the peace or the security element of uh, South Korea's regional policy going forward. And this doesn't mean necessarily that Seoul should or indeed would uh, consider a role in some of the more controversial elements of regional maritime security, uh, like the US freedom of nav navigation operations. Um, but instead, uh, in my view, South Korea needs to start playing a larger role in boosting the naval cap uh, capabilities and capacity of its partners, especially in Southeast Asia. So I'm talking about things like providing more of the training and equipment necessary to create a greater balance between the region's naval forces. Uh, at the same time, it's important to note that South Korea um, has, although it's invested a lot of, uh, of money, a lot of resources into this naval development over the last 30 years, it still trails behind other regional navies like China and Japan. So, as I say, going forward, it's still really important to invest in more versatile platforms that can be used both around the peninsula and as part of its blue water mission. A good example of this, of maybe what not to invest in controversially for South Korea, is that Japan, uh, China, the US, Russia, all these navies have like hospital ships, which have a very explicit um, kind of uh, humanitarian aid and disaster relief. Uh, mission. And for South Korea, although I argue that it should invest in humanitarian aid and disaster relief, by choosing a platform that has only a single use, it really limits itself in how it responds to different situations that may or may not um, develop in the region going forward. So, um, you know, as as final point I'll make is that as the South Korean Navy continues to mature, it's going to experience some interesting things which it hasn't really had to consider before. Uh, a good example of this is uh, decommissioned naval platforms. So South Korea has been uh, boosting its Navy for the last 30 years, and a lot of these kind of initial investments uh, will soon be up for decommission because they're too old. So the question is what to do with these decommissioned ships. I gave you the example earlier of uh, ships that are being used in order to shape domestic public opinion in South Korea itself, um, which is really important if South Korea is going to continue to uh, make the kind of substantial investments to its Navy over the long term, which it has done for the last 30 years. Um, another example which South Korea's already started doing is donating old uh, patrol and frigate ships to Southeast Asian partners. There was recently news about, I believe, the Philippines. So um, much like Australia does with its old ships, um, it's really important here to have like a long term process where not only the platforms, but also the training and kind of ongoing support is provided over a longer period of time. And I think a lot of these things are still being um, considered in Seoul. So I will, I will stop my remarks there, but um, thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Alexander. A fascinating topic. Uh, we do have some questions in the Q&A box. Please uh, feel free to put some uh, put your questions in there. Before we get to the audience Q&A, though, uh, Alexander, um, your PhD research uh, looks at middle power uh, identity formation. So I wouldn't mind asking you at this point, what is the role of middle powers uh, in the Indo-Pacific region during times of strategic contestation? And I was I was wondering when you were speaking, you're talking about, you know, South Korea could play a, role, a, a bigger role in capacity building in Southeast Asia. Australia could too. Are there opportunities for middle powers to work together in regional maritime security cooperation? Sure. So the first thing I would say is that uh, middle powers in general, um, in, in terms of their strategy, focusing on the regional level is a really good idea because for middle powers, they don't have the capacities to be able to influence every area of the world, obviously, like perhaps great powers would. So uh, pitching your, uh, your foreign policy at the regional level is something that I think is really important, not only for South Korea, but also for other regional middle powers. Um, and, and of course, uh, middle powers tend to be focused, uh, tend to be very open to cooperation. Um, so so these kind of multilateral uh, initiatives are very appealing to a lot of these states. Um, but having said that, um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a single role for middle powers. And in fact, uh, what we can see in some of the region's self-identifying middle powers is that they have taken on uh, quite drastically different roles over the last five, ten years. Uh, my friend at, at Sydney University, Dr. Gabriel Avandanza, had an article out um, last week, I think, in International Affairs, where he looks at the three key middle powers in the Indo-Pacific region, being Australia, South Korea and Indonesia, and basically outlines their roles um, as Australia being very committed to its alignment with the US, I think certainly since 2017, South Korea being very cautious um, about its role, and Indonesia being very kind of sceptical and more neutralist. I think we're starting to see, a, we're going to see a bit of a shift now that South Korea has a more conservative um, president going forward from May. Um, but I still think South Korea has a lot of structural forces that mean it's impossible for South Korea or very difficult for South Korea to fully get on board uh, with the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. For South Korea, China is still the number one trading partner and South Korea is still very kind of geographically proximate uh, to China. So, so that's obviously different from um, Australia's geographic position, right? Um, so, you know, on the one hand, we can say that all these states... Um, are very cooperative and they're likely to have a really important impact and role in shaping the regional order as, as we go forward. But I don't necessarily think that they're um, going to have this kind of um, uniform approach to the region. Thank you. Well, we might get to Q&A and there's a comment and a question for you, Tom. So uh, there, the comment is that uh, in your review of statecraft and diplomatic reach, uh, there's a recommendation that we don't restrict ourselves to traditional methods and it's worth checking out how the French handle commercial diplomacy as an example. So you might want to respond to that. But there is also another question from Tom Corbin from the US Study Centre. Hi, Tom. Uh, wholehearted he is in wholehearted agreement with you on the need to fund diplomacy alongside defence and other tools of statecraft. Uh, however, he's interested in any thoughts you might have about where that resourcing should come from, given that budgets are finite. Uh, do defence dollars need to be repurposed for DFAT? Uh, is this primarily about getting spending priorities right within defence or can funding be shifted from other portfolios? I think this is uh, a central uh, question for thinking about how Australia manages its international affairs, certainly linked in with what Alexander was talking about being a middle power. Being a middle power means that there are limited resources. So, uh, Tom, uh, you have a response to those comments and questions? Yeah, thanks, Bex, uh, Beck, and thanks to Tom and the other question asker. Um, I'll do the first one quickly and then the second one. So, um, 
I'm not super familiar with like French commercial diplomacy, um, but I totally agree that, you know, there's other methods that could definitely add value to um, how Australia conducts its own diplomacy. Um, you know, whether it be, um, you know, feminist foreign policy can make a big contribution or Indigenous knowledge, like, for example, with AP4D at the moment, we've started our Pacific program and there's a lot of talk on how um, Pan-Pacific Indigenous linkages can really contribute in terms of negotiation, uh, traditional knowledge, that type of thing. So, you know, I'm not a subject matter expert in any of those by any stretch, but um, I think the key is to provide platforms uh, for voices, different voices, diverse voices that might not otherwise be heard, um, as well as bringing together people to talk, have dialogues, um, discuss different ideas, because then you get really get the value out of all the different perspectives. Um, so as for Tom, Tom's question, um, look, I, to be honest, I haven't looked a whole lot into the question of where that extra funding should come from, what should be rearranged, that type of thing. I guess the the angle I was coming from was more in terms of getting the process right to begin with before we start allocating the funding. So, um, you know, I think it's key, like I talked about the UK integrated review style um, thing that could be undertaken, and it's key to have that so you have that guiding foundation that can ensure coherence. That will then organically help with prioritising because there'll be a clear national um, strategic um, narrative, I guess, or um, outline of what, what we need to do. And um, just getting that conversation going to outline what needs to be done and how we can get there. Um, so, for an example, I think the, the latest Lowy poll or maybe the one beforehand, the top five threats identified were like um, droughts, pandemics, um, Global, the global economic downturn, um, climate change and environment. And, you know, none of those really can be um, fixed with more military hardware. So military defence can be handy for some things, but not all. And if those are the top threats that people are identifying, I think there's definitely a case to be made that, you know, we should allocate funding towards um, the arms of statecraft that can better deal with those types of challenges. Um, you get more bang for your buck with diplomacy. There's not those really large overriding um, legacy costs of having to maintain really expensive platforms or keep acquiring new ones to keep up with the trends, which also just accelerates security dilemmas. I mean, it's a tough question um, to answer how much you take. But, yeah, I think it's really key is the process. Get the process right to determine what the priority should be. And then I think the funding side of things will kind of take care of itself. Um, Get also getting a bit of public debate on it too would be really key because there's a bit of mis misperception out there of actually how much we do spend on diplomacy and development. Um, I mentioned the lobby poll before. Again, they've got some great data um, where I think it was the majority of participants thought that Australia spent about 15% of GDP, uh, GDP on um, diplomacy and development overseas aid. They thought that was too much, but they were happy to spend 10%. Um, at the moment, we spend, I think it's 0.2%. So, you know, look, the appetite, I think, is there. It's just about getting that conversation started. And from there, you can move on to, um, you know, the, the reallocation of resources and things like that. Thanks, Tom. Um, there's a, there are a few questions for Isadora, so I'll turn to you now. The first question is about uh, the extent to which female political representation is a key to success. Uh, if there are more female MPs, is there less likelihood of intranational conflict? Uh, and the second one we have from Christian Wells. Uh, given that large numbers of women have joined PDFs in the current conflict in Myanmar, Myanmar and are also quite prevalent in ethnic militias such as the Arakan army in the Rakhine state. Do you think women will be more influential in any future conflict resolution efforts than they have been in the past? So over to you. Thanks, Beth. They're very good questions. I'll do my best to answer them. I think in terms of female political representation and the effect that that has um, on the likelihood of countries re resorting to aggressive, aggressive, aggressive conduct. Um, I guess I would say that it's obviously very important to have representation of people of all genders in, um, in, in the political space, but it's obviously not a silver bullet. 
I tend to conceptualise of um, women's representation in, in the political sphere as being a right um, rather than a means to an end um, because there's just absolutely no reason why um, people, of, uh, people of different genders shouldn't have equal representation um, in, in government. Um, I think at the same time, um, people tend to think that women will be more uh, le yeah, less likely to, to support violent conflict um, because of our historical conceptualization as carers um, and, and men's role as the sort of strong defenders. But I think there's, there's no real um, biological basis for this. And we see women represented across the entire political spectrum. So I don't think it's necessarily borne out um, that, that women, uh, women politicians wouldn't support conflict. But I do think that um, a, a state with um, greater representation or equal representation um, of gender diverse people in, in government probably reflects um, high levels of equality in the society um, in, in general. And, um, and we know that um, countries that are, have a basis in gender equality are less likely to be aggressive um, to neighbours. So I think, I think in that sense, um, it, it is really important to, to have, um, to have female or diverse, um, gender diverse political leaders. Um, and we've obviously seen, um, not that it's necessarily a conflict despite some, um, some countries uh, naming it as such, but yeah, definitely in, in the COVID response, I think we've seen countries with greater um, female political representation handling that um, in a very different way to some, to some others. And, and yeah, you, you could say that that's been a more, um, a more social human-centered response which, um, yeah, is an interesting comparison. Um, I hope that answers that, that question. Um, I'll try to move on to the other one. Um, so do you think women will be more influential in any future conflict res resolution efforts because of higher representation of women in PDFs? Um, I, don't, I don't think that would necessarily be the case. I think it takes a more concerted effort to translate um, uh, more female, um, yeah, fighters or soldiers um, into actual um, progress in, in a peace process or, or future conflict resolution efforts. I think it would be really interesting to look at other countries that, um, in which conflicts um, have, have had um, more sort of female combatants, such as countries in Latin America like maybe Colombia, um, I know that's obviously a very, very different context and it's really hard to compare Myanmar to other countries because it's such a unique um, and complex environment. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think um, there would be a high risk that any gains made towards gender equality in a conflict situation would not be carried over in a post-conflict society and I think yeah, a very, very conscious effort has to be made to do so. Otherwise, um, the everyday, very patriarchal or seg uh, sort of um, patriarchal norms uh, of a country like Myanmar with um, very strong traditional gender roles, I think uh, we'd see a, a, a sort of snap back to that in the aftermath of a conflict. Um, but, yeah, it'd be, it'd be really interesting um, to see what's happened in that space in, in, other, in other contexts. Thank you for that uh, set of responses. And Alexander, we have a couple for you as well. Uh, any insight from you? You did uh, briefly discuss the new Korean presidency, but any more insight on how um, that will view Korea's maritime borders as more or less Trumpian? Uh, uh, and the second question is from Tom Corbyn as well, uh, sneaking in a second one there. The, rela the relationship between uh, Korea's Navy and Japan's um, self maritime self-defence force is generally considered quite robust, but Japan-Korea 
relations have hit new lows in recent years and prospects for repairing the relationship seem quite dim, even with new leaders in Seoul and Tokyo. In this new political context, do you think the growth in South Korean naval power is likely to produce greater or lesser stability in its relationship with Japan in the coming years? Uh, so I guess those two questions are related. Uh, and over to you, Alexander. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I think maybe I'll start with the second one. I'm not sure about Trumpian maritime borders, um, but but so I'll start with the second one. I think uh, the simple answer is uh, the I don't think that the either by having strengthening uh, South Korea's maritime uh, capabilities or platform numbers, I don't think that necessarily has any impact in terms of the stability or instability of Japan-Korea relations on its own. Uh, for me, it's all about uh, how those uh, material factors are shaped by um, how the politics plays out over the next administration. Um, so we could say, you know, if we look back, um, as I think Tom mentioned, like South Korea's uh, relationship or South Korea's naval relationship with the Japanese Navy has been fairly strong in some instances um, and how they've interacted at sea has often been um, really positive. So if we look back to uh, the, the, the interactions between um, their ADICs, their air defense identification zones, for example, um, there's been a lot more cooperation in terms of informing each other uh, before they enter each other's air defense identification zone and, and vice versa. Um, so it hasn't become this issue um, in many ways that, that, the, 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 that they've had with uh, China and other regional actors. Russia um, over the last 10 years. Um, but at the same time, there have been a number of flare-ups and definitely there are issues um, that involve South Korea's Navy for which um, South Korea is prepared to demonstrate um, extreme resolve. I'm thinking of an incident a few years ago where um, there was an ex exchange of fire um, in aircraft above uh, Dr. Takashima, the disputed island between um, South Korea and Japan. There have also been incidents um, like during a, uh, during a, a joint maritime um, event where South Korea was upset of uh, Japan flying a particular flag, the, the rising sun flag. So um, I think really uh, a lot of it depends on uh, the politics of how that plays out in the next five years. Um, hopefully we won't have a repeat of, of things like uh, inflammatory um, actions like visiting uh, disputed islands and or, 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 or certain other statements, um, which really haven't helped in the last last 10 years. But for me, yes, I think there's there's opportunities for cooperation. I, I ended my talk by talking about um, the potential for humanitarian aid and disaster relief, um, uh, especially in Southeast Asia. I think one of the um, really sad things about this region that we're part of is the extreme vulnerability that we have to natural disasters and extreme weather events. Um, but in terms of naval cooperation, it's also in a very perverse way kind of an opportunity for cooperation because it's likely that there will be these extreme weather events or natural disasters within uh, the next 10 years. And I think that's a real opportunity uh, for the regional navies to demonstrate their ability to cooperate. Um, so I think, yes, uh, definitely more um, naval platforms or more capabilities will enable that kind of broader cooperation away from um, Northeast Asia, especially in a kind of broader regional framework. But as I say, for me, the, the important thing is the politics that kind of um, that influences how those interactions at sea are going to uh, be shaped over the next five years. In terms of the new president and his approach to maritime borders, well, um, Gosh, so of course, uh, President-elect Yoon has uh, taken a, a, a somewhat more hardline approach um, to North Korea security, and um, there's certain um, considerations being made at the moment about the agreement made back in 2018. Um, about how they control that border zone and prevent clashes. Um, there's been a clash within the last uh, two weeks, I believe, um, of North Korean um, naval ships kind of going over the disputed, um, the disputed line uh, to the west of the peninsula. So I don't expect that to change. Um, I would say in terms of 
I'm not sure the the champion element of that question, but in terms of the the um, the number of uh, escapees or, or or people who have left North Korea to get to South Korea, um, that has that number has really dropped off, uh, partly because of COVID and the way that North Korea has responded to that by really um, trying to seal shut the borders. But one way that um, immigration has happened from North Korea to the South has been by the sea. And that has been like very, um, very important over the last 10 years um, in terms of like shaping their interactions. So I don't know whether President Yoon will have um, a stronger response or not. He's signaled over the last couple of days that um, he's not going to get rid of the Ministry of uh, Unification, um, which had been kind of hinted at over the last few months, and that's not now going to happen. Um, but instead, it's going to be apparently empowered to kind of play um, a role, a broader broader role than it did maybe in the Moon administration. So we'll de- see how that plays out. But I think in in many ways, it's it's too early to tell. Things are things are not going great in terms of inter-Korean relations at the moment. Um, and certainly all the movements um, that I've seen point towards there being um, a lot more provocations in the short to medium term future. So I don't know whether that necessarily plays out along the maritime border in the same way that it did under some previous presidents, um, like Im Young-bak. But um, yeah, we'll have to see in the next few months when Yoon takes office um, how North Korea responds. Thank you very much. I'm afraid that is all that we have time for. I would like to thank our excellent panellists for joining us today and thank you, the audience, for watching this Latrobe Asia launch event. Uh, This webinar has been recorded and if you're registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they're ready. Uh, Please do check the Latrobe Asia website if you'd like a soft copy uh, of uh, copy of edition six of our policy brief, or you can email us and we'll be happy to send you out a hard copy. Our next Latrobe Asia event is a hybrid event. We're very much looking forward to being able to meet in person. (laughs) Uh, It's been a while for us. Uh, And that event is deepening Australia-Japan relations in a contested region. So you can sign up to that to attend that in person or you can join us online, and that is uh, at the Latrobe University City Campus, uh, Monday, 4th of April at 3pm AEDT. I'll be joined by Stephen Nagy, uh, Nick Bisley and Kauri Okano, and we're going to be discussing the major strategic issues facing Australia and Japan in the region. Uh, so uh, please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Uh, But thank you again uh, and have an excellent evening.